Before I share some thoughts today on our scripture readings in the second Sunday of Advent, I wanted to speak to a request that the, the bishops of the United States have made of us. On Tuesday, December 12th, they've called for a day of prayer to resolve a troubling legislative issue in our country regarding immigration. So as you may or may not be aware, the president has declared that unless Congress passes legislation that will give uh, permission for the estimated 800,000 young men and women who were brought here from other countries as children, but do not currently have citizenship status, uh, if they don't pass legislation protecting them, they will be deported from the country starting in March. Now, <clears throat> a brief study of this issue it makes it clear that would be a disaster. These people, this is the only country that they've known. They've grown up here, uh, and they're practically, for all, for all intents and purposes, uh, members of, of the United States. They lack this legal status, however. To deport them, uh, it, would it would impose huge burdens on them and, of course, on our government agencies, on our public treasury. And so the bishops are asking that we pray that Congress can pass a solution, a legislative solution, for those affected by the repeal of that, uh, that executive order, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, uh, and a legislative solution that would generously provide them with, with options, legal options to remain in our country. So for that intention, we will offer Mass this Tuesday, which happens to be the Feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe. We'll offer Mass here in the chapel at 12.05 p.m. That's not normally scheduled, so um, please mark your calendars if you'd like to participate in that. If you can't join us for Mass, please keep that intention in your prayers. And I would invite you to educate yourself a little bit about the Church's teaching, uh, social teaching, especially about immigration. I'd just like to offer a few parameters and background on this question. The Catholic Church, based on revelation, that is the scriptures, our longstanding tradition and reason, teaches that people have a right to leave their home countries in search of a better life. When poverty or hunger, unemployment, unrest, and other factors hinder their human flourishing. It also teaches that more prosperous nations are obliged to the extent that they are able to welcome the foreigner in search of security and the means of livelihood which he cannot find in his country of origin. And this, of course, we can find riddled throughout the scriptures. But just to give one example from the book of Leviticus, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall do him no wrong. The stranger who sojourns with you shall be to you as the native among you. And you shall love him as yourself, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. At the same time, the church also recognizes that nations have the right, even the duty, to secure their borders. And that nations have a right to limit immigration when the common good of society requires it. And that is in due consideration of such factors as national security, the domestic economy, but that those policies should not be created out of wanting to avoid inconvenience or selfishness or some minor cost. In other words, we should err on the side of being generous in admitting people who come and seek a better life. So we can break down 
Maybe the positions as we see them settling out in our country right now into two basic camps. A permissiveness towards immigration, even fostering or promoting open borders, and a restrictive approach. And where we're to draw the line between those, it's not at all clear. And the church doesn't want to draw that line for us. It's something that has to be ironed out, weighing all of the goods and the costs that immigration implies. But making clear, right, making clear that there should be a preferential option for being generous whenever possible. And there are good and faithful and intelligent people on both sides of this question. So, maybe for your consideration, I just want to ask a question of each of those perspectives as a way of maybe promoting further study and conversation. To those who favor a permissive approach to immigration, it's good to recognize the plight of those who are seeking a better life. It's good to recognize and, and be troubled by the injustices of our current policies. Those are understandable perspectives. But church tradition does recognize that immigration has to be subject to some regulation, rather than expecting a country to welcome every single person. We might design immigration rules not only for our security, but also with concern about how many immigrants can actually be sustained and received, how well they can integrate into a society. And at some point, even according to church teaching, it, it, is, it is expected that a country would be able to say no to some perfectly decent people on entering the country. So the question is, what point is that? When we hear those appeals to welcome the stranger, to care for the sojourner, treat the immigrant as a native, those would be much more credible if they were accompanied by some definition. At what point does that become imprudent? So that's a question. What are the limits of welcoming others into a country? To those who favor a restrictive approach towards immigration, there are a lot of valid points about the difficulties in integrating people who don't share our national culture. There are concerns about increasing economic inequality by importing large amounts of very inexpensive, cheap labor. But the church requires us to make a decision not based exclusively on practicalities, that we have to make a moral decision. Even if there are negative effects in increasing immigration, it's still the case that we have to have special concern for migrants, for refugees. So to those who favor a restrictive policy towards immigration, I think it's worth asking, what difference is there between your position and a completely secular person without faith who has the exact same data, analyzes the costs and the benefits of immigration in exactly the same way? What difference is there between your position and a secular perspective on those same data? That is to say, does your Christian faith impact your position in any way? If we can frame our debate about this very troubling and urgent question, I think we can conduct it in good faith. Pray for the gift of prudence for our leaders, for our legislators, the gift that comes from the Holy Spirit to advance some real practical legislation, which is the only way we can justly address these questions, especially in light of our own Constitution. So thank you very much for your attention on that. I'll be publishing um, this podcast on our website, 
and some resources. If you would like to do some reading, I'll post some essays, some, some perspectives on these questions, if, those are, if that's something you would like to follow up on. So much for that. Now, if I could radically shift gears. I'd like to read to you a, a, a prayer from a Benedictine monk who lived in the 12th century by the name of Anselm of, of Canterbury. Insignificant man, escape from your everyday business from, for a, a short while. Hide for a moment from your restless thoughts. Break off from your cares and troubles and be less concerned about your tasks and labors. Make a little time for God and rest a while in him. Enter into your mind's inner chamber. Shut out everything but God and whatever helps you to seek him. And when you've shut the door, look for him. Speak now to God and say with your whole heart, I seek your face. Your face, Lord, I desire. These words of St. Anselm, a beautiful restatement of our opening hymn today, if you catch some of those resonances. This prayer greeted me in my, in my prayer this week. Praying in the morning, starting my day with some time with God, is often one of the most difficult times for me to pray. If you're anything like me, I've got the whole day ahead of me, I'm, I'm ready to attack. And so I page through my prayers, I often find myself going through the list of things that I have to get done that day. My mind is elsewhere, going through my checklist, making sure I don't overlook anything. I came across this prayer as I was doing just such a kind of distracted mental preparation of my day, which would be a stretch to call it prayer. And this echo of the cry of John the Baptist that we hear in our gospel today T-bones me, and I realize what I'm doing or what I'm not doing. To be slothful, to be drowsy, we return to this again today. But that might seem like a little bit of a stretch to think what I was doing was being slothful or lazy or drowsy. Didn't I just say I was gearing up for a busy day? Slothful, lazy people don't have busy days, do they? No, they sit around catching up on their TiVo, drinking Mountain Dew out of a wide mouth bottle. That's not me. Saying your morning prayers doesn't sound very lazy, sounds committed. All too often, it's easy for us to, to identify sloth, that deadly sin which annihilates the life of God in us, with simple laziness. You see, Sloth is more of a kind of boredom. Sloth is a joylessness over spiritual things. St. Thomas Aquinas defines it as sorrow over my spiritual good. It's the state of not caring about God or the things of God and not caring that I don't care. So this has very little to do with physical laziness, with indolence. In fact, being busy, being engaged in constant activity, is actually one way that this spiritual laziness can grow and take deep root in us. The season of Advent is aimed at attacking the strongholds of sloth in our lives. Not surprisingly, this season of Advent, if it's acknowledged at all in our culture, gets it exactly wrong. Our culture, our culture 
gets us to whip ourselves up into this frenzied state of preparation, which usually involves all the typical things we're familiar with, which homilists have been railing against since, I don't know, you and I, long before you and I were born. All the shopping, the cooking, the consumption, the partying, more shopping, glossy advertisements, Cyber Monday, so that by the time Christmas comes, we're so exhausted, we sleep off Advent on Christmas morning, and we're back to work on Tuesday without so much as a ripple in our life with Jesus. The church has a different vision, though. The church knows that when we really prepare to celebrate Christmas, to enter into the festivity of what it means for Christ to be born as one of us, then our celebration can't be confined to just one or two days, but should extend for weeks. In fact, all the way to Epiphany. The Christmas season doesn't end with Christmas Day. And as you know, preparation makes for good parties. Just as there's no violence as ugly or destructive as religious violence, there's no celebration as satisfying or festive as a party on the occasion of our joy in what God does in our lives and what he makes us to be. So it's hard to remain quiet and expectant when the world around us is caught up in this holiday joy. But that's exactly what the church is asking us to do. That's exactly what Christ is commanding us to do. That prayer of St. Anselm, it's perfect for the season of Advent. There's a kind of fierce longing for God that spoke to me and I hope speaks to you, inviting me into that preparation that John the Baptist calls for. Lord my God, teach my heart where and how to seek you. Where and how to find you. Lord, I was made in order to see you, and I have not yet done what I was made for. Lord, how long will it be? How long will you forget me? How long will you turn your face away from me? When will you look upon me and hear me? When will you enlighten my eyes and show me your face? When will you give yourself back to me? Set your sights this Advent on dismantling some stronghold of sloth in your life. Take time for prayer. That's where it begins. Schedule an appointment with God. Schedule it every day of your break, students. Keep to it like you would keep an appointment with a doctor or a professor or friend. Use the resources that we send home with you. Get on our website, log into Formed, watch a movie about a saint, listen to a podcast. Keep these things before your, your mind and your heart. Don't let them subside into a sleepy slothfulness over break. For the rest of us, preparing, doing the shopping and decorating and everything else that comes as part of the warmth of this season, keep those appointments too. Stay mindful of the Lord. Make, make time. And make time first. Attend to those things so that the rest is infused with God's presence and the desire for God that Anselm speaks of in that prayer. And I would say, students, don't wait till break either. I always found finals week particularly clarifying. It was during that time when I had a lot to do and very little time in which to do it that I was way more motivated to study, to put off frivolous activities. 
I exercised more. I prayed more. I ordered my life because I knew what I had to do, and it was clear. Take a study break with us on Wednesday night. Come to adoration. Spend a little time with the Lord and prepare the way. But whatever situation we find ourselves in, let's pray together with St. Anselm. Look on us, Lord. Hear and enlighten us. Show us your very self. Restore yourself to us that it may go well with us whose life is so evil without you. Take pity on our efforts and our striving toward you. For we have no strength apart from you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.